0: Hello, I'm Luca De Giglio, and this is the Web Tree in Travel podcast, where you can learn about crypto, blockchain, and how the new internet will change travel. About a month ago, somebody uh, wrote to me in, uh, in LinkedIn, I'm not going to say the name, I don't think, uh, I haven't asked for permission, but I don't think it matters, um, an investor from I think, uh, well, a venture, so a venture capital firm telling me to listen to a podcast, a specific episode of a podcast from Peter McCormack, uh, What Bitcoin Did podcast. This is a podcast I listened to a lot uh, some time ago, then I, I kind of stopped. And where he basically saying that, um, well, they mentioning the uh, Uber, uh, the centralized Uber use case. And well, he's saying it doesn't really make sense. His, um, his guest, uh, uh, this guest is uh, Lane Rettig, is giving some more nuanced uh, reading of, of this situation. So uh, this person told me, "Why don't you answer to him? Why don't you make an episode uh, entry about this?" Right? And I said, "Yeah, well, that's actually interesting." And well, and I'm gonna do it now. So I I don't think I can copy or like uh, make you listen to what they say, but I'm gonna get like uh, sentence by sentence, more or less. I'm gonna repeat them and then then give you my my take about this. In case you want to listen to the episode, it's called uh, The Reality of Web3 with Lane Retic. And it's uh, the episode 513 from What Bitcoin Did. So WBD 513. And this part of the conversation happens at about uh, 1 hour and 36 minutes. So let's start. So Peter uh, makes this um, example of him traveling from the UK to to New York and he says, well okay, I'm going to get my decentralized Uber and then I'm going to get my flight on my decentralized British Airways and then I I go to my decentralized Airbnb and he says, how many shitcoins do I have to have? And you know, shitcoin is basically from his perspective, any kind of token which is not Bitcoin, maybe Ethereum. So this is one one way. Uh, some Bitcoiners, uh, usually defined as Bitcoin maximalists, um, define any other token. So he says, I need too many tokens to basically do the script, which is very complicated. And the other guy, so with his name uh, Lane Ratik, replies, "Well, that's not different from today because you know you have a card. You use your pounds. You use your dollars. You use whatever kind of currency you have, the card allows you to pay everywhere, right? And uh, so let's think about, well, let's say that there's actually decentralized airlines, uh, decentralized uh, Uber, or decentralized Airbnb. Can I pay with those tokens? Yeah, I mean." Imagine you have a Binance card or a Crypto.com card, and they have the tokens inside, you can use the card normally uh, without thinking too much about which tokens you're using, right? Um, In the Binance card, you can uh, define a priority. You say, okay, I got Bitcoin, I got Ethereum, I got uh, the Airbnb decentralized token, the Uber decentralized token. You don't need to pay with the Uber decentralized token for your Uber. You can pay with your Bitcoin, with your Euro, with your Dollars, uh, with your Ethereum, with your Airbnb tokens. It doesn't really matter because credit cards have and are acting now as as a layer which simplifies and hides behind the scenes all the complexity. So as long as these tokens have value, you can use them. Now, where is the actual issue here? Is the volatility? These tokens, uh, at least at the beginning. Are going to be really volatile and spending volatile money is really hard, even spending Bitcoin or ETH. The only time I feel comfortable in, in spending crypto with my Binance card or crypto.com card is when the crypto prices, the token prices have been going up for a while and I'm ready to sell. So yeah, I got my you know, let's say Airbnb decentralized token for a dollar, it's worth 10. It's going to crash sooner or later. Okay, let's start spending it, right? And this is not only me, this is a general psychology of, okay, getting to the moment where you want to actually spend your, your coins. If instead you pay them 10 and now they're worth five, well, you may spend them because you say it's going to zero or you're going to say, well, I'm going to wait, okay? So anyway, because they are volatile, they are hard to spend. And the same thing actually happens with Bitcoin. So. A turnaround to this is like, okay, when you get these tokens and you want to spend them for for your trips, you exchange them for a a stable coin, USDT, USDC or something like that. And at the moment you're spending them, you're not thinking anymore, am I doing the right thing? This seems to be a futile exercise, but it's actually true because when the moment you're spending and you have maybe your credit card connected to your bank account and your crypto credit card... If you have stable coins, you're going to just spend them. You you won't think about it. But if you have crypto, you're always going to have this feeling, is it a good financial decision? You can speculate even when you're paying for a coffee, right? So no, uh, you don't need to spend your Airbnb token for your Airbnb or your Uber token for your Uber. You just spend whatever you have and uh, you, you buy your service. And I know where Peter is coming from because Peter comes from the Bitcoin point of view, right? In which... We want Bitcoin to be used as a, as a payment method without going through credit cards, but because it's too volatile, is a bit hard. So unless you're earning in Bitcoin, and Andreas Antonopoulos explains this very well. So if you are constantly getting paid in Bitcoin and you're constantly spending in Bitcoin, then you won't really be affected by the volatility too much. Uh, it becomes much easier to spend in Bitcoin. And now how many people are actually today earning in Bitcoin, right? Very few. And um, so it's also hard to get you know, a whole salary paid in Bitcoin constantly. So this case, Andreas is, is explaining, is um, spreading niche. So maybe Peter here doesn't make or hasn't experienced the, the spending crypto through a credit card uh, or a debit card, and basically thinks that you need to spend that token for that service. So yeah. Why not? Maybe Uber, if they decentralize or somebody like Uber decentralizes, they're going to say, if you pay with our own token, you have a 5% discount. Then yes. Okay. But we're not talking about anymore. Nobody's going to say you have to spend our tokens or this is not going to work. This is legacy thinking from 2018, when we actually told that you can issue lemon coin. And if you want to buy the lemonade, you need your lemon coin. There's also a funny bit about that if you look for it it's a parody of you know how crypto works uh, as a payment and it's from a few years ago so definitely fun to watch and uh, that's that's the kind of thinking peter is is uh, is giving us here and so peter here continues his conversation and says something a, a bit weird in my opinion because he says when i pay i don't want to think uh, how much have i staked and uh, what is the value of this token is it going up is it going down I prefer to use the credit card where the, the value is fixed. and this problem is the same you have with Bitcoin. You know Do I have my private keys? Is that too? Like, do, do I have my wallet with me? Is it like a wallet with all the money? So am I putting my, my world at risk? Uh, is the price of Bitcoin going up? Is the price of Bitcoin going down? So it, that, that's why it's weird. It's explaining the problems with paying with a volatile currency saying this is a problem of, of tokens, which actually this is a problem of, of any currency, any cryptocurrency, which is not the stablecoin. And then Peter says, basically, he doesn't believe um, a decentralized Uber is, is ever going to happen. And he says, if you want to do it, why don't you do it and without a token? Why do you need a token? And he says, you need a token because tokens are a great way for investors to have fast exit liquidity so they can invest uh, you know at one at the price of 1 and they can sell later to the to the retail at the price of 10 and this part is true um if you are an investor and you are investing in um let's say a normal startup with with shares you have to wait for a liquidity event uh, what they call an exit so maybe somebody buys the startup or the the startup makes an IPO that's how you get the money out of your investment multiplied. Uh, this part is true. With tokens, this can be much faster. You can buy token at the pre-sale, say it like, costs you know, 10 cents to you in a private sale. Then the token goes on the market with an ICO or maybe just goes on the market with an airdrop, whatever. And then the price goes up at 1 or 10 and you can sell. Now, this is a very basic approach. Um, serious projects give some vesting. And this vesting is public so you know that investors paid 10 cents and they cannot sell for 4 years but this is not always transparent and i would stay very far from those projects so if a project is selling a token it doesn't tell you how many they sold to whom and what is the vesting i wouldn't touch them because then you as a buyer become exit liquidity you are the one giving the money to the to the investors so this part is true but He's saying the only reason tokens exist in general is that they are a good way for investors to have exit liquidity. And while this is true often, it is not the only reason tokens exist. And this is the whole tokenomics uh, of projects. And Lane Rettig replies to him uh saying basically that you you need monetary policy in these projects so you need to be able to mint or burn those tokens and you cannot do it with the eth or or bitcoin and it doesn't explain much farther than that but it's basically look if you are if you have a project and you want to raise money tokens are a great way to raise money either from investors or from the general public that's why you need a token and so you give them the token they give you money uh, that could be ETH or it could be dollars or whatever, and then you spend the money to build the product. This is a very basic way to to raise money, and it's proven. It's been proven actually to to work. Now, of course, if you point to the failures, which are many, as they are many with startups, you could say this doesn't work. But for raising money, it's a good way. I talked uh, in the past about ICOs and, and stuff, so you can go back to those episodes. You need a token if you want to raise money what are you going to sell otherwise shares well then you're back to the previous model which is good it works fine but maybe you want to raise money by selling tokens and by selling tokens you are giving access to a wider range of people and those people with your tokens can become part of the project they they're going to pump your project not not pump the token itself but you know talk about your project because now they are incentivized and this creates a whole uh, you know marketing layer Of evangelists, etc. But we discussed these things in the past, and this is the first answer. It's it's pretty simple. You need a token because you want to raise money. Then, when you have raised money, well, you and you have your tokens. These tokens can be used for governance, for instance. They could also be used for payments, but that's not the point, really, right? Because for payments, we have other ways. We have, you know, other other tokens. We have credit cards. We have, if you don't want to be hundred percent decentralized, you can also accept credit cards. So. That's the basic answer, right? And tokenomics goes much deeper than that because tokens are much more than just shares. They're also money and they are also governance votes for everybody who has the shares. Um, we discussed this in the past, I won't repeat it, but basically here, Peter is not um, accepting the fact or he doesn't know that you know tokens are a great way to, to raise money, basically. So you need to raise money to build most of the projects. And then he says, or he asks, why can't you do this with Bitcoin? This is a classic um, rebuttal of Bitcoiners. Oh, okay. Let me make a parenthesis here because Bitcoiners, who is a Bitcoiner? I define a Bitcoiner, anybody who has Bitcoin. Okay. And I am a Bitcoiner myself. Actually, I am a Bitcoiner since 2013. So I'm pretty early in this. Now, I am also in other projects. Uh, I am also an Ethereum, if you want. Uh, Maybe we should refer to people like Peter McCormick as Bitcoin maximalists. And it could be a bad label or a too strict label, but in general, maximalists say everything should be on Bitcoin, every other token is a shitcoin. And they just basically say everything else is a scam. Okay. Now, of course, in the Bitcoin maximalist uh, group, you have the very extreme ones, very simple ones who don't even have any kind of nuance, and then you have the more advanced ones. I'm forced to put them in the, under the same label, but I want to make sure that uh, you understand it, it's a group. Okay, It's a specific group with different levels of, of knowledge there. So let's say that Peter McCormick can, can be called a Bitcoin maximalist. So Bitcoin maximalists do that. They always say, you can do this on Bitcoin too. Why do you do it on another blockchain? It's just a scam. But the fact is that nothing has been built on Bitcoin so far. And I personally, from my limited technical knowledge about this, I personally think Bitcoin is not supposed to be this kind of network where you can actually build uh, scripts which are more advanced than the very basic ones. Because if you try to have a more flexible Bitcoin, you're also making it less uh, solid and more, more fragile, right? So they have talked about doing everything on Bitcoin, DeFi on Bitcoin, et cetera, And I really hope we can have these kinds of industries on Bitcoin because the base layer is the most decentralized, uh, even if the discussion you know, between Ethereum and Bitcoin, decentralization is very complicated. Still, Bitcoin is probably the most decentralized uh, blockchain out there. If we could have defi NFTs and everything else on top of Bitcoin, it would be fantastic. Problem: we don't have it. So when we see that we can actually have something like this without sacrificing the censorship resistance and you know the solidity of of Bitcoin, I'm all for it. But so far, unfortunately, we haven't seen that. We have seen. A lot of attempts to do more complex things on top of Bitcoin, and these things tend to be also centralized because, you know, again, it's not easy on Bitcoin. Bitcoin wasn't built for that, right? And this is fine. If Bitcoin accomplishes the goal of becoming a global currency, a global store of value, we don't need more. We can do the experiments elsewhere. Why does Bitcoin have to do everything? I mean, it's, it's a token, it's a blockchain, it's not a god or uh, a, the, the one technology which will save us all, right? It's just one technology. Why are these Marxists so angry about the fact that a lot of economic activity is happening elsewhere? But yeah, let's go, let's go on with the, with the podcast. So here Lane says, it's disingenuous to say that tokens are never needed. He says, you know, if you want to start something like a DAO, and he's mentioning uh, Shapeshift, which was a centralized company, which went completely decentralized or is going toward complete decentralization, you need a token. And Peter here says, but okay, why do you call them tokens? These are equities. And again, this is uh, n- not understanding what a token is. A token is not only a share. It's not equity only. For instance, it can be used for payments. You cannot use shares for payments, right? And we discussed this in the past. So it's basically trying to make the case, which many many Bitcoin maxis are doing now, is like everything else, everything which is not Bitcoin is a security. Please regulate it. And this is really sad to see because Bitcoin comes from a ethos of decentralization, independence from the government, cyberpunks, cyberpunks, etc. And seeing Bitcoiners calling the regulators to regulate Ethereum or tokens, it is really sad. It means something has changed by, by growing. Other people came in with different ethos, different ideologies, different ideas. And I hope they haven't taken over. They did, at least in terms of noise. But if you are a real Bitcoiner, and I'm not saying a maximalist, a Bitcoiner, you're not calling for the institutions to regulate stuff just doesn't make any sense if you think that something doesn't have value you're going to believe that the market is going to refuse it you know if all these tokens are shit coins after a while the market will stop buying them and here Lane Rettig says something interesting which is basically people use tokens because they can circumvent the the laws the laws which protect investors and the laws which you know give a fiduciary duty to um, the company, towards investors, etc. And so it is a perfect instrument to basically take money from retail. and this is true, you know But here you have to remember one thing, and I like how Andreas Antonopoulos sees these this kind of things. It doesn't go like it is bad or it is good. It says it is both bad and good, and he says uh, talking about ICOs, he says basically you have to be able to keep two conflicting ideas in your mind, and I think this is a superpower for today's world. So what is the what are the conflicting ideas for ICOs? You know, ICOs are initial coin offerings where I say okay, I'm gonna do a decentralized Airbnb, I'm gonna issue a billion tokens. Uh, I'm going to sell them for 10 cents uh, and I'm going to raise money. You get a token, I get the money, right? And with the money, I'm going to build a decentralized Airbnb. Now, if somebody just wants to make money and run away, it's the perfect instrument because even if something which is not clear to people investing in these things, when you read the fine print, they say, that gives you no right. This is like a donation. Why do you do that? Well, because there's no actually framework legal framework which allows you to kind of protect the buyer more than that and also if you don't want to get too many risks you're going to try to write it in a way in which this is not um, an equity because when it's an equity the SEC comes in and you have troubles you should have done a security token and again it's not well regulated yet in general and if you are a grifter you want to steal the money it's perfect say you give me money I give you a token which gives you no rights. And then you disappear. That happened a lot of time. That's one side. The other side, on the same side, sorry, is like when you have, you know, uh, actually you don't want to steal, but your idea is worth nothing or it's like very hard to implement. You spend all the money and you give up. And this is more like startups in general, right? This is very high risk investments. It happens with startups. And once in a while you get um, a good one. On the other side is like, it's the first time we have a global way to raise money which gives access to these early opportunities to investors all over the world, without any limitation, without any limit in how much you have to invest, you can invest ten dollars. And some people actually were very happy with that. Um, if you look at the Messari report and I talked about this, yes, most ICOs were you know failures or scams. But more money has been, more value has been created in the total of the successful ones than all the investments which have been done in ICOs. So, are ICOs good or bad? They are both. This is how we, um, we have to think, in my opinion, about ICOs and in general about crypto. Before, we were in a world where if you wanted to invest in the early stage Airbnb, Uber, or anything else, you had to be in Silicon Valley a business angel with the right connections, or a VC company, which means basically 0.001% of the population of the world. And today we are in a world in which you can invest in any early stage crypto company and in future any company, I suppose, even if you have $10 and you are in some remote village, as long as you have a connection, a mobile phone, and you know enough curiosity to learn about crypto. This is true democratization of opportunities because you know how much money people who invested in early stage startups made. Instead of going always to the same people and concentrating wealth, now theoretically we can have this wealth more um, widely distributed. And also, you don't need to be in Silicon Valley anymore to do that, you can be anywhere else. Also, democratization of opportunities for startups. This is the good part of the metal. The bad part is like, now we can really scam everyone around the world. So is it good or is it bad? I guess it depends on your worldview. If from my point of view, yeah. I think it's really good. I, I really like this new world and I have lost money in tokens and I've made money in tokens and I've seen people losing a lot of money and maybe these people will not invest anymore. They learned a lesson, I suppose. So it is really hard to say if this is something which makes the world fairer or worse. It's really hard to say that. Uh, but well, let's see uh, we, at least we left that world in which just a few people had all the opportunities and Lane Retty here says that you know the situation before was really bad. He was an advisor in a in one of these companies and he couldn't own shares. I'm talking about non crypto companies. he couldn't own shares because. He wasn't an accredited investor. So again, the opportunity was going only to the few. And when ICOs came in, in into being, everybody could invest from, you know, again, from everywhere at any price and with any kind of capital, they would have even $10. Again, it's really up to you to consider this a better or a worse word. I, I prefer it like this, to be honest. And then ICOs got kind of banned because, you know, it goes against the law. And the next cycle, the investments worked differently. Startups, crypto startups started saying, okay, if we do an ICO, we're going to go to jail. So let's raise from uh, accredited investors. And what happened is actually bad because they would raise money from accredited investor at a low price and then release the token on the market at a higher price. Uh, so the, the, the retail was like investing, was open to the investing too late. It it, it had access to the investing when, you know, paying a dollar when it was sold before for 10 cents. So because of the regulations, because of the investor protection, investors, uh, in my opinion, got it worse. So to to sum up my, my take on this part of the episode, the reality of Web3, um, I see uh, Peter McCormack, um reading as, as a simplistic one. And he comes from a place I know very well, which is uh, Bitcoin, because I was there when there was basically no Ethereum. So I know how the kind of worldview and the kind of uh, interpretation of cryptocurrencies you have when there is only Bitcoin. And then Ethereum came and a lot of things came to existence, and my my feeling is that Bitcoin maximalists got stuck in that period. Many of them, because they tried it, they, they told that there was some value in it, they bought tokens, they, they lost money. They see all the bad things about this space, and, and they tend to forget the good things, and they tend to forget the bad things Bitcoin had before, because when there was only Bitcoin, there were speculators. There were sharks. There were the bad people. There were the scams. Just the same, when Ethereum came out, well, more because there's a bigger attack surface if you if you want. And with NFTs, even more because now you know you could attract another kind of uh, of people, less technical, more visual, etc. So, um, to sum it up again, this is a simplistic reading of the situation, in my opinion, uh, from Peter. Uh, while Lane Retic, I forgot to say, is a former Ethereum core developer, which basically who basically left the space and is a core developer now for Space Mesh, which is a new cryptocurrency saying that they are going to make Satoshi's vision a reality. Uh, in in his Twitter bio, he's, he still defines himself as an Ethereum and as a Bitcoiner. So he has a much more uh both informed and nuanced view of the situation. So while Peter uh, completely dismisses the the idea that something good can come out of it, Lane is is more positive about that. Me, you know what I think? I think, you know, there's a lot of potential here and we should keep experimenting. And there is a lot of you know uh, trial and error and a lot of scams. So it's uh, as the bankless guys say, it's the West, we're going into a direction where things are both interesting in terms of opportunities and dangerous in terms of uh, of risks. So I hope I, I gave a um, comprehensive reading of of this uh, part of the podcast, a part of the episode of the podcast, and I hope I gave you a bit more uh, in depth analysis of of this. Now, you are going to meet people in your journey. You know, if if you start a journey Web three, you're gonna meet people who are completely dismissive of this, uh, and usually they are Bitcoin Maxes you you can do what you want with them you can try to engage and try to learn from them maybe uh, they help you go back to the basics but do not in general expect too much you know knowledge or even intellectual honesty uh, from most of them so well but it's going to happen there is today in bitcoin a very open fight amongst the bitcoin maxis which kind of took over the narrative and lowered very much the quality of the of the discourse, and other people who often have been in Bitcoin longer than them are much more technical, and because they are open minded, they also follow Ethereum. And those those people are first amongst all is Andreas Antonopoulos, and, and now others are kind of defecting the the Bitcoin Maxi space or the Bitcoin space by saying we have to. Isolate and you know silence those people. Silence is not a good way. They, we have to take back the narrative because it's really become tribal and and religious. And this is not good for Bitcoin and for anybody else. It's just some people who took over uh the, the zealots, the 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 noisy ones, the violent ones, etc. So this is one part of crypto which is not very well known unless you follow Bitcoin. I find it very, very interesting. I root for the the second field, you know, the the real OGs and the real technical people who understand Bitcoin deeply. And I just I hope the Marxists just go away because they're such so annoying and so, um, in my opinion, they are slowing down everything in Bitcoin. The only good thing I can say about them is that you know you need to have some religious people on board who will never give up. Um, the core believers, but I don't think they are very, you know, I I can't really, I don't think we can count on them too much and they're going to run away because they don't understand Bitcoin, in my opinion. So the, the most vocal people who defend Bitcoin to the level to say that everything else is a shit coin, I don't think they understand Bitcoin. This is my opinion with the due exceptions of people who are really technical and understand it much better than me, but God kind. Um, they decided to focus on Bitcoin because of, of what it means and the, the impact it can have. And, you know, everybody has a limited time, and limited bandwidth, and maybe because they were, they are too focused on, on Bitcoin. They, they just don't want to get sucked into the Ethereum space because it's really too big. And, uh, they simply dismiss it. Um, anyway, very interesting cultural wars going on right now in crypto. All right, this is the end of today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. For more insights on Web3, follow me on Twitter at Tripluca, T R I P L U C A, and see you next time.